I would make the argument instead of the comparison between Yaki and the Confederacy, I would make the comparison between Yaki and Boston. If we're going to rename or take Tom Yaki's name off of this, what are we saying about the city of Boston? What we're really saying is, is that we do not want his name on this franchise anymore because we did not appreciate or we don't feel that the contributions that he made to the Boston Red Sox were greater than this racial legacy that we can't escape. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak about the debate to change the name of a street that runs by Fenway Park, named after former Red Sox owner Tom Yawkey. And we speak to the only person whose opinion I wanted to hear about this. That's ESPN's Howard Bryant, author of the great book Shut Out, a story of race and baseball in Boston. Also, a new segment on the show called State of the Art, where I speak about an area of culture with someone who knows more than I do. This week, it's talking pro wrestling with Damian Smith. Then, I've got some choice words about Chris Long, Malcolm Jenkins, and the politics of solidarity in the wake of Charlottesville. Of course, I got Kaepernick watch this week. We also have Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down this week on the show. And we end the program with some very, very special, and I would argue sacred words. But first, let's talk to Howard Bryant. Howard Bryant, thanks so much for coming on the program. My pleasure, Dave. Why would somebody who maybe has just a very uh, superficial knowledge, basic knowledge of baseball history, someone who is anti-racist, why would they want Yawkey Way to be renamed? Well, I think the biggest reason why you would want this street to be renamed is because it's, as John Henry said, I think he used an appropriate term. I think he said he was haunted by this. If you are a student of history and if you're a Red Sox fan and if you're a Bostonian, this issue has been part of your DNA, pro or con, for your entire life. This is an issue that's been an issue with that organization. And let's remember that, that Tom Yaki as a character has carried this simply by his name as the team owner from 1933 to 1976 when he died and then when his wife took over with the Yaki Trust and they held the team until 92. Hmm. So, actually, I'm sorry, until 2002. After Gene Yaki died in 92, the Yaki Trust continued for another 10 years until selling the team to John Henry in 2002. Who is the current owner, so we're talking one degree, one degree of separation from the depression exactly so you're looking at 1933 in fact you're 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 two degrees of separation from from harry frizee who owned the team with babe ruth so because frizee sold the team to yaki in in 1933 so you're looking at from 1933 to 2002 essentially a dynastic run under the yaki name and under that name you had the boston red sox who could have been the first team to integrate in 1945 with the jackie robinson tryout humiliated Jackie in 45, did not integrate until 1959 with Pumsey Green. And then after that, the Red Sox had been sued not once but twice during that time for not, not only not having black players, but not having a single black employee. In 1959, the Massachusetts Council Against Discrimination, uh, Committee Against Discrimination, uh, had sued the Red Sox twice, I think once in 1950 and then once in 1958, 
for the wow. Red Sox didn't have a black janitor or a black grounds crew person or a black secretary. They did not hire a single black person. And so then, even as you go into the, the 70s and 80s, you also recognize in the time of free agency when there's big money and player transfers and player movement and, and, and the good, rich teams like the, Red, like the Dodgers and the Yankees essentially dominating the 1970s, another rich team, the Red Sox, weren't even involved necessarily in, in free agency. They did not sign their first black free agent until 1992. They signed Billy Hatcher in 92, and then they signed Andre Dawson. Those were the first two black free agents to play for the Red Sox. Billy so, Hatcher. <laughs> Billy Hatcher. It's a remarkable, remarkable That's name right. that, to me, rings of such recent baseball history. That's right. So what we're talking about here is a legacy of of racism and of, of, of racial animus toward African-Americans that has gone on for most of the 20th century. And so that's the reason why people are still talking about this. And I disagree with the argument that people are talking about it because they're all just swept up in Charlottesville and they're all just swept up in social change and, and the social justice warriors are taking over. If you are even remotely familiar with Boston and if you're a true Bostonian like I am, this has been an issue forever. And let's also remember that, that Jersey Street was renamed Yaki Way in 1976 after Tom Yaki died. So it isn't like Yaki Way has been there for 100 years. It's been there for 40 years. Right. Not unlike some of these Confederate monuments that have only been there for 40 years, 50 years, what have That's you. That's right. So it's not as though there was no life before Yaki Way. It was Jersey Street. And mm. so it can be another street, and you can do something else with it when you think about these different cities. There was, you know, when I was going to Temple University, it used to be Columbia, and now it's Cecil B. Moore Avenue. So, so be it. These things change, and, and we change with it. So on the one hand, I do have issues about the name change. And on the other hand, if it's time to change, it'll be a historic, historic step, and it'll put an end once and for all to this question in Boston about the the Red Sox and their ambivalence or their relationship with the Yaki name. Well, but before I ask you what your individual response was as a historian, as a sports writer, as a Bostonian to the name change, um, just another question about Tom Yaki, the individual, because uh, you mentioned about not even a black janitor being hired by this team. When I think of the bombastic racist owners in sports history, I think of people like George Preston Marshall actively That's supporting right. white supremacist causes, mm-hmm. even to the point of putting it in their will when George Preston Marshall died in, I believe, 69, that right. none of his money could go to integrationist organizations in 69. And what, right. what was that Tom Yawkey? Was he bombastic? Was he out there? Or is it more complicated? No, Tom Yaki was the opposite. Tom Yaki was the genteel sort of plantation owner who was a, he was, a, he was the, the get-along guy. He was that guy who enabled all of this while smiling in the face of a lot of the black players. And, 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 and he was the befuddled man. He was the one who couldn't figure out where all this racist talk came from. I got no problem with black people, yet his whole organization didn't hire any. He was the guy who was very upset about this, and he was also the guy who took that sort of rich man's paternalistic approach to race as well. He was very well known for loaning his players money. Louis Tiant and Tom Yaki were very, very close because he had loaned Louis Tiant money when Tiant was having financial problems. And so there were all kinds of examples where people looked at Tom Yaki on a one-to-one basis. 
mm-hmm. and they made the separation between how he treated them on that one-to-one basis and the power that he had wielded over that franchise for the last 40 years, and he did nothing with it. In fact, he actively hired people that didn't want African Americans around, and he didn't do much about that. So I think the hard part about him and the hard thing about us as a society is when we think about racism and when we think about responsibility in these subjects, we we are much more able to reconcile with the George Preston Marshalls of the world or the George Weisses, the old general manager of the Yankees, you know, the people who who are actively racist as opposed to the ones who sip their cocktails and, you know, tip the black help really, really well down at the plantation, but they're not going to give you any opportunities. Mm. So what was then your response, historian, sports writer, Bostonian, when you heard about the changing of the name of Yaki Way or that it's on the table? Well, I actually heard about it a couple of years ago. Uh, I was at the winter meetings in Nashville, and the Red Sox executive walked by me on the last day of the, of the meetings, and he said, hey, Howard, quick question. What do you think about changing the name? And I said, I don't think so. And, of course, my my spidey sense didn't go off that maybe something's up. Mm. Maybe there's a change in the air, and I didn't register because I was walking out on my way to the hotel. So, obviously, this has been in the Red Sox mind for a few years now. My initial reaction is is that I don't like the idea of scrubbing history, and I believe there's a difference between the historical and the ahistorical, whereas the ahistorical is putting up a Confederate monument in 1970, and making it seem like it's some sort of heritage or connection to a a war that ended 100 years earlier. On the other hand, there is something to be said for the dynastic legacy of Tom Yockey. Tom Yockey is an integral figure in Boston history. There's no getting around that. If you take his name off 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 of a street in front of Fenway Park, there's the Yockey subway stop on the T that's 100 feet from Yaki Way. There's the Yaki emergency room over at, I think it's Beth Israel Hospital, um, you know, on one of the hospitals over there down in, in Boston. There's the Yaki, you know, $3 million that they gave to the Jackie Robinson Foundation to get that project up and running. So the Yaki name is everywhere. So I think that to me, I feel that if you're going to change these names, you do so knowing that you are toying with history, but you're also doing so making sure that you remind people that that name held a lot of power and that you're not erasing the history. You're getting rid of the name, but you still keep that history alive by reminding people that you know the, what Tom Yawkey was and what he did and what it, he didn't do. It, it sounds like, and I'm sort of also saying this question on the basis of knowing you off air, it sounds like you're making a differentiation between renaming Yawkey Way and, say, tearing down some of these Confederate monuments or something that I'd love to see, renaming Jefferson Davis Highway, which is a 20-minute drive from my house. You're saying that these should be looked at in different categories? Well, I do. I do. I think they should be looked at in different categories because, one, I think my problem with the Confederacy, the Confederacy conversation to me is one of the great – missteps and and, and missed opportunities in American history. I think that when I think about the Confederacy, I think about about America as a country choosing being white over being American. And I think that's why those Confederate monuments really have to go. I think that they are symbols that the reconciliation that took place 
essentially allowed the the racial the racial attitudes and the racist attitudes of the South to be revived. That's mm-hmm. why I don't think that's I don't think it's harmless. I think that I, I think that you you don't have the virulent racial periods that you that you had in the teens right before World War One and also in the twenties and leading up into civil rights. I don't think you have these Confederate monuments if the if the United States had put its uh, had put its ideals ahead of its racism. And you know, during the Reconstruction period just to say what we were, we are no more, and we're not going to enable the Confederacy. And the Confederacy, they were traitors. They were traitors. It wasn't just a racist or racial question. They tried to overthrow the government. Right. And that, to me, is, is why the Confederacy has to go. If you really call yourself a patriot, if you really call yourself a constitutionalist, there's no room for what they did. So, so Tom Yawkey never led a racist insurrection. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that with the, and I think with Yankee, it's it's a little different from the standpoint that 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 Tom Yankee as a character did not do right by his franchise, um, and I think that the Red Sox as a city, when you you can't, I would make the argument instead of instead of the comparison between Yankee and the Confederacy, I would make the comparison between Yankee and Boston. What when we're going to if we're going to rename or take Tom Yaki's name off of this, what are we saying about the city of Boston? Mm. What we're really saying is is that we do not want his name on this franchise anymore because we did not appreciate or we don't feel that the contributions that he made to the Boston Red Sox were greater than this racial legacy that we can't escape. And I think that if you're John Henry and if you're the city of Boston, I think that's appropriate. I actually think that makes sense because you can't you can't name you can't mention the name Yankee without talking about the history of race in Boston. You can't do it. And so I think that if that's John Henry's motivation, and you say, look, it's time for us to start a new history. I I have no problem with that, none at all. Let's take it to John Henry, uh, the majority owner of the Red Sox. What's interesting about this Yaki Wade discussion to me also is that in many places in this country, from you know from Durham to uh, my God, I, I mean, I could almost like close my eyes at this point and point a finger from that. It's coming either from political officials or popular movements to remove these yep. Confederate and this is monuments. From an owner. This is coming from the owner of the team, exactly. And so, do you think that will affect the reaction from the Boston faithful? And and what do you think the reaction will be? from the Boston faithful. The Henry thing complicates it only because it's easy, I think, for people to turn their ire towards, say, black college students. Maybe those same people, it's tougher to turn it towards uh, you know, a 55-year-old billionaire running the franchise. I think that there's always been in John Henry a conflict here. When he bought the team in 2002, he and I sat down when I was just finishing uh, Shutout. I was just finishing the paperback version of Shutout. And he and I had a sit down, and he told me about when he was growing up in Arkansas, um, how difficult it was for him to go to the movies with his sister and to look up and see all the blacks sitting up in the balcony because they couldn't sit down low. And that these things matter to him. They don't make him special or they don't, you know, he didn't want a medal for it, but he was telling me that I'm aware of this and I don't want my name on this. 
And this is what we're seeing with Chris Long, and this is what you see with Stan Van Gundy, and this is what you see with Greg Popovich and some of the other white names out there that that are saying, look, I don't want my name on this. Mm. And if I have an opportunity, I don't want a medal for it. I don't want, I don't want you to look at me as, as – as anything more than a person that doesn't want to be associated. And he said to me, I remember this very specifically in 2000, the end of 2002, early 2003, before the paperback of Shout Out came out. He said, I will promise you two things. We are going to do our very best to win a championship in Boston and not let anything come between that. And by that, he was saying, we're not going to not sign players because they're black like we used to here. And I'll make another promise to you. What we were before, we will no longer be. Now, in those 14 years, have the Red Sox had a black, uh, you know, manager? No. Have they had a black GM? No. Have they had a black, you know, minority owner, which John Henry also said he wanted? I think some black person out there has enough money to buy a piece of the Red Sox. That hasn't happened yet. Um, but can you look at the John Henry Red Sox and say, same as it used to be when we were kids, and you would go to Fenway Park and get, be afraid of getting beaten up? No. He has held that promise. You know, and he's gone out, whether it's, I'm going to say, with David Price and with Carl Crawford. I mean, he's gone out and he spent money to have a black face be the highest paid guy on that team. And with David Ortiz, obviously, he's doing things that the Yawkey Red Sox never did. So for me, looking at the John Henry that I've known over the years, not particularly well, but I have known over the years, this is consistent with who he's been. Mm. Let, let me ask you this. Do you think... Henry coming forward right now to say this at this incredibly volatile moment where it would get maximum publicity given everything that's happening in this country right now. From what you know of John Henry, do you think he's, being, he's been affected by Charlottesville, by Trump? I know he's a big Democratic donor. Or do you think perhaps – the Adam Jones incident, which we covered extensively on this Jerry podcast, say. Mm-hmm. do you think that's playing into why he's coming forward? Yeah, I think it's all the above. I think it's all the above. And I think I think what you're seeing, and I was talking with a friend of mine about this the other day, uh, I think that you're seeing as Ed Scott, the old the old scout, the late scout who who discovered Hank Aaron, used to say about growing up down in, in Florida, in Hope Sound, Florida, um, where he would say, if you wanted to survive being black in Boston, you had to find the good ones. And he was talking about the good white people who weren't going to, get you lynched mm. or the good ones who were going to bring you food or the good ones who were going to treat you like a human being is you had to find those good ones. And I think that if you're John Henry in looking at a time that we're seeing today, whether we're talking about the election or talking about Adam Jones or talking about Charlottesville or talking about, you know, Bannon and everybody else in the white house, I think those good ones are running out of space to go. There's nowhere else to go. You can't hide from this anymore. You can't negotiate it anymore, and I think that you're seeing a lot of people having a, a sort of last straw moment. And maybe Charlottesville was the last straw. Maybe that speech, the, the many side speech, as you wrote about it, maybe that is the last straw. Maybe that is going to be that infamy, that day that lives in infamy for a lot of people where you can't negotiate this anymore. And it forces you to say, you know what, enough is enough. I've got to do my part, and maybe this is his part. Wow. And I, now I might as well um, ask. Let's. We might. I mean, this is such a serious topic, and these are such serious times. But something that is kind of fun uh, is playing a little bit of the rename game. Uh, my producer Dan, one of my two producers, is from the Boston area, 
And he got so excited when he heard about renaming Yawkey Way because he was like, oh, Pedro Martinez Alley, David Ortiz Street, Jim Rice Way, Elijah, Jerry, Pumpsy Green, you know, and he, Pumpsy Path. He was, like, excited about. Yeah. So um, as long as, you know, I could have a little bit of fun with this, I mean – me, me personally, I, I understand uh, naming it after an athlete of color. There's part of me, though, that would love the thought of Spaceman Way after Bill Spaceman Lee uh, just because of what most fans do on Yaki Way before they enter the enter Fenway Park. Anyway, it would be weed, very appropriate. Weed, weed, weed Way. Yeah, Weed Way in honor of the Spaceman. Um, but, but, but I would ask you, if, if you had the, the power of rebranding, what would you call the street? I would name it after the Red Sox because it's, because I think that the – I know that's bland to make it Red Sox Boulevard or Red Sox Way or whatever. But what we're really trying to do here is you're trying to say that the city belongs to everybody and that the team belongs to everybody and that it's a city street and the city belongs – you know that city street belongs to everybody. I don't think you have to necessarily redress and rename it after Jim Rice or rename it after somebody black – and make it Crispus Attucks way or whatever you want to do. I mean, if that's how far you want to go. I don't know if that's Imagine John Henry doing a press conference like, (laughs) Nat Turner Boulevard. Exactly, Nat Turner Boulevard. Um, I I don't think that's necessary. I think that what you really want is, if you're sincere about this, you want to send the message that the Boston Red Sox belong to everybody in that town, and that the Boston Red Sox are your team, no matter if you live in Roxbury or Dorchester or Southie or Eastie or Charlestown. And you give it a name that blankets everybody. And I think that's appropriate. Um, if he felt like he needed to, to, to make a direct response to, to Jackie and to Pumpsy and to every player that had a chance to play for the Red Sox and didn't get a chance, well, maybe you name it after Jackie and let that be that. Mm. Because that closes the loop from the first black player that should have been a Red Sox and never was. Well, now when you come to your games as a Red Sox fan, you walk down the street of the guy who should have been yours and never got to be that. Mm. Beautifully put. Howard Bryant, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. That was ESPN's Howard Bryant, author of the book Shut Out, A Story of Race and Baseball in Boston. I can't recommend it enough. We'll be back right after this quick word from The Nation magazine. Look, we need alternative media right now. We need to get news out into people's hands. The Nation magazine has been doing it for 150 years, and we ain't stopping. Can't stop, won't stop. Support The Nation magazine. It is more needed than ever. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. That's thenation.com slash subscribe. Read my stuff. Read John Nichols. Read Collier Meyerson. I mean, we're talking some amazing, amazing writers doing the best work on the political left. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And now it's time for some choice words. Look, there is a hidden history of white male professional athletes standing up against racism and taking some of the arrows usually reserved for their political black and brown teammates. There was Pee Wee Reese standing alongside Jackie Robinson as the racists rained down invective, saying, maybe tomorrow we'll all wear 42, that way they won't tell us apart. 
There was NFL linebacker Dave Megacy speaking out against racism and the war in Vietnam. There was pitcher Jim Bouton standing with the anti-apartheid struggle. And there was Bill Spaceman Lee, who we mentioned earlier in the program for his love of marijuana. But he was also somebody who was in a Red Sox uniform calling out the racism of Boston fans. More recently, NBA players like Steve Nash helped to organize his team to wear low sun shirts to push back against anti-immigrant bashing in Arizona. And in today's NBA, and I can't believe I'm giving credit to a dookie here, but I have to, J.J. Redick has been thoughtful and outspoken about racism in the United States. It's not illustrious, and it's not deep, but it exists. And it's precious because of the conversations it can open up among white families And today, for the first time in a long time, its embers are lit. Last week, Chris Long, defensive end of the Philadelphia Eagles, made a very simple gesture before a preseason game by putting his arm around teammate Malcolm Jenkins as he raised his fist during the national anthem. Malcolm Jenkins has been holding his fist high for a year and has pledged to continue this season, explaining, quote, Last season, I raised my fist as a sign of solidarity to support people, especially people of color, who were and are still unjustly losing their lives at the hands of officers with little to no consequence. After spending time with police officers on ride-alongs, meeting with politicians on the state and federal level and grassroots organizations fighting for human rights, it's clear that our criminal justice system is still crippling communities of color through mass incarceration. End quote. Now, Chris Long, who went to the University of Virginia and is from Charlottesville, has spoken out in recent days about his outrage following seeing Nazis march in his hometown, as well as Donald Trump's shameful response. Last week, he attached deeds to words when, during the anthem, he put his arm around Malcolm Jenkins' shoulders while Jenkins raised his fist. After the game, this is what Long said. He said, It's been a hard week for everybody. It's not just a hard week for someone being from Charlottesville. It's a tough week for America. I've heard a lot of people say, why do athletes get involved in the national anthem protests? I've said before that I'll never kneel for an anthem because the flag means something different for everybody in this country. But I support my peers. If you don't see why you need allies for people that are fighting for equality right now, I don't think you'll ever see it. Malcolm is a leader and I'm here to show support as a white athlete. I just told Malcolm, I'm here for you. I thought it was important for athletes with my skin color to stand up with others protesting for racial equality. As for Jenkins, he said, this is a moment in time where he feels the need to take that step and lead, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that as well. This is one of those moments where white athletes do need to step up but it's gonna require more and more to stand in defense of a very basic and often empty principle that we are all taught from the first time any of us take the field. A team is supposed to be like a family. Right now there is a president trying to tear that family apart. You either let that happen or you put your arm around your brother and let the world know that you won't be divided. And now for the part of the show we call Kaepernick Watch, where we speak about the latest comings and goings of Colin Kaepernick. This week, I want to say something that's a little off the cuff, a little different than what we usually talk about. Uh, I just love this story so much, I want to share it with everybody. 
I have a very good friend named Maurice Cook, and Maurice went down to Charlottesville. He was almost killed in Charlottesville, and just I'm I'm so grateful that uh, Maurice is still with us. But the car was very close to him when it sped through taking the life, murdering Heather Heyer, uh, when the Nazi murdered Heather Heyer. And Maurice spent the day out there wearing his Colin Kaepernick jersey. He's just a huge Kaepernick fan. And I sent a picture of Maurice in his jersey facing off against uh, the Nazis and the armed militias. I sent it to Colin Kaepernick and to the Know Your Rights camp, and they loved it. And they've posted the picture online. And then I told Maurice that, yo, Colin Kaepernick saw your picture and loved it. And Maurice was just so happy. And this is a big deal to me because Maurice was having a very tough time, as I'm sure people could imagine, after Charlottesville. I mean, this was very tough to live through that and to go on. And when he heard that he got some love from Kaepernick, I mean, he was he was happy. And so I was happy. And that's just, I mean, so to me, that's also what solidarity is all about, like reaching out when somebody needs it. It also goes to show you whether we're speaking about the words of Michael Bennett or whether we're speaking about Maurice standing in his Kaepernick jersey, that the echo of what Colin did last year is still being strongly heard. I will say this also about Maurice. Uh, he's helping organize something called the March for Racial Justice on September 30th in Washington, D.C. Please look out for that. Go to m4rj.com. That's m the number 4rj.com for more details about the March for Racial Justice. We are back on the Edge of Sports podcast. This is a section of the show and I think I want it to be a running section that I call State of the Art. It's where I look at the form more than the substance or content of a particular sport. And I can't think of a better sport or a better person to start the state of the art segment than somebody who won't yell at me for calling what we're about to talk about a sport. <laughs> and this is Damian Smith, pro wrestling maven. You may remember him from the interview we did with Mick Foley. Damian, how are you doing, sir? I'm just a grown man who cares way too much about fake fighting. And I'm wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start it off right away with the state of the art. We're talking about WWE, and I want to talk to you about where WWE is and where they've been. Basically, the evolution on issues of race, gender, and representation. But before we talk about gender, let's talk about gender. Oh, I like that. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. Namely, Jinder Mahal, who is the current WWE champion. If you could talk to us a little bit about who Jinder Mahal is, what he represents, and what you say about his representation at this point in time. Okay, so Jinder Mahal is a Canadian wrestler of Indian descent. Uh, he had a stint with WWE before. Started out, uh, he was presented as a foil to their uh, to, to, to Indian professional wrestler, Great Khali, and uh, didn't really do much. He ended up as part of a comedy act called 3MB, the three-man band. Then he was fired, like a lot of people who, you know, hang around the company for a while and they can't find anything to do with them. Uh, he was future endeavored, as they call it. Um, and he returned a little over a year ago 
in what can only be described as the best shape of his life. Or anyone's life. <laughs> oh my goodness. Like the hard body ripped to shreds. Like it's freakish. The way he the way he describes it is that he quit drinking and that he uh, you know, he started a started meal prepping and a, and, and a strict workout regimen and he was able to transform his body. Um, I have no reason to disagree with that because Yeah, we're not gonna I, cast you know, dispersions, yeah. but I am gonna say I've never seen a bicep on somebody's cheek before. If that is kind of, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's that crazy. Um, well, you know, uh, Scott Norton had biceps and muscles on his face. That's true. Uh, That's true. Towards, towards the end, Mark McGuire had muscles on his face. But again, we're not. We're not casting those kinds that. of aspersions. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. So how's but, he being represented now as this incredibly physically imposing uh, Indian man? Well, see, here's the thing. He, so they've, they've decided to give him what's known in professional wrestling as a push. Uh, which is kind of shocking because he never held the title before. And then they just put a rocket in his butt, and all of a sudden he's the champion. Mm-hmm. Um, they gave him an entourage of two little dudes uh, that are his entourage, and both he, Indian as well. Both both Canadians of Indian both descent. Both Canadians as well. of Indian descent as well. And this Canadian thing is important because the way they're presenting him, they're calling him the modern day Maharaja. He wears a turban to the ring, and he and he sometimes cuts off his promos to speak in Punjabi. This is the thing. Much like most professional wrestling heels, he's right. The crowd is xenophobic. They are booing him because he's not American and doesn't have a white face. Wait, so you're saying that he calls out the crowd? Yes. Yes, and he's for being right. racist. Yes, and and, wow. and, and 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 as is always the case in pro wrestling, the heels are right. They always have a point. A while back, there were a Canadian wrestling faction known as the Heart Foundation would say that America doesn't take care of its sick and old people, and all the crowd could do was boo and chant USA. Like, there was no, you know, <laughs> like uh, yes, we. Uh, yeah. So so let's go back to this point though, because he. This seems like, though, you mentioned the Hart Foundation. They were, of course, white. Right. Um, historically, though, when you would have a character who came from, say, the global south, it would be like, I mean, almost like savages, like 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 really playing up the stereotype of that country for, for, for U.S. consumption. This sounds like something more complicated than that. See, to me, this seems like they're trying to to have it both ways. Okay. What they're trying to do, it seems to me, is placate the American wrestling fan and the xenophobia that they that professional wrestling has always uh, toyed with in, in the United States. But they uh, India is an emerging market with 1.3 billion people. Like that's a that, that, there's a lot to be done in a, with a global company like WWE having mm-hmm. somebody who can be presented as uh, the face of the company and is also a familiar-looking face to the 1.3 billion people of the country of India. What do we know about the response in India to Jinder Mahal? According to the reports that I've seen, the response has been relatively positive. Uh, It seems as though, um, in India at least, and and much... much like the uh, the Heart Foundation did in Canada, I'm going to use that example a lot. I didn't expect to, but I guess I will. Uh, in Canada, the Heart Foundation were heroes. They were cheered all over the place, and in, and once they crossed, uh, you know, the American border, they were booed again. And that seems to be what's uh, how they're building gender uh, in India. It's an it's an attempt 
to the, for the first time since the Great Kali, it's an, it's an attempt to make serious inroads into that market because they have competitors who have made significant inroads uh, for all the you know they, they, there's a company called uh, Impact Wrestling or it used to be NWA TNA and for all the the people laugh about laugh at them for attempting to operate uh, as a much bigger entity than they're able to. They have made inroads in India. They had a show called Ringka King, which ran in India and was and, and was a hit. Wow! So we're talking capitalism here, basically. We're talking capitalism here, absolutely. And so with <laughs> capitalism and racism, which are often you know like the snake eating its own tail or mm-hmm. the intertwined cousins, whatever you want to call it, conjoined twins. What you're talking about here is them trying to have their cake and eat it too, just like you said, like trying to play to racism in this country while trying to make inroads there. That's that's very fascinating to me. But now we get to this question, though, of Charlottesville and what's happening in this country right now under Trump, because I would argue, and I think you would agree with me, that this gender thing was going to happen independently of the 2016 elections. That mm-hmm. They wanted to make their inroads. Gender came back jacked. Mm-hmm. This was going to happen. Yeah, they saw him when he came back. They were like, oh, yeah. This is money. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so this was Six, going five, to happen. Yeah, this was going to happen. But now we've got Charlottesville. Now we've got Nazis in the streets. Do you think this gives the WWE some pause about how much to play up the whole USA chanting against him? Because I could see them, and this actually is very upsetting at the thought. I could see Ginger taking that mic and say, look at all you Americans, you march in Charlottesville with your swastikas. And because he's doing it from the perspective of the heel, people aren't like, hey, don't say that to me. People are like, USA, like when he says that. Almost like organizing people to be part of the so-called alt-right. Well, look, um, I don't, I'm don't. i not going to dive too much into that other than the fact that Linda McMahon is part of the Trump cabinet. Uh, Linda McMahon, the wife of the chairperson of WWE, Vince McMahon. Yes, right? Linda McMahon, the, the, the CEO of the WWE. Right. Um, Did she not resign for the Trump role, or do I, we know? I, uh, I, 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 I can't imagine that yeah. CEO is really much more of a ceremonial title. It's Vince's company. He's in charge of everything. Right. <laughs> Doesn't much matter. Now, he's in charge of everything, but this gets to the interesting discussion that we can have about gender, because Vince McMahon is also and has always been just a dyed-in-the-wool sexist and oh. objectifier of women. Mm-hmm. And from what I read and understand... That shifted, of course, in recent years, but not because of Vince McMahon. Can you speak about the shift in terms of how gender operates in the WWE over the last 15 years and where you put credit for that? Well, absolutely. Well, it's an interesting arc because uh, uh, 15 years ago, we're, we're coming out of what's known as the Attitude Era. And so in the WWE's Attitude Era, they ramped up the politically incorrect to 11. They went for, and that included a lot of um, really, really nasty, nasty sexism in the way the women were presented. At the same time, there were a couple of women who, on the wrestling side, were starting to put together the types of matches that people were paying attention to. You, I'm not the biggest Trish Stratus or Lita, Lita fan in the world. I personally think they're both kind of overrated. But given what women were doing in the company at the time, uh, what they were able to do and, and, and the way they were able to present their matches was incredible. After they retired, uh, things moved into this, what is commonly known as the diva era. And that's when... Yeah, what's the diva era? 
there was usually only one women's match on, on the show. They would try to shoehorn as many of them as possible. It would be one to three minutes long, and oftentimes it would be like a pillow fight or an evening gown match or just something... Some, just some sort of titillating nonsense, or what they call the popcorn match, which was the which what they put on while you wouldn't get popcorn mm. while you were in the arena. And they even called the championship the Divas Championship. It's called the Divas Championship, changed from the Women's Championship, and it went from a, just a, just another belt uh, with, with an interesting shape to a pink butterfly. Wow! And of course, Diva has the connotation of. Basically, a, a, a bratty real, woman who a, wants attention for attention's sake and hates other women, basically, because there only, can only be one diva. Which is hilarious. Which is hilarious to me because diva used to be uh, the badass woman who was the centerpiece of an opera. Wow. Yeah, no, <laughs> so, I know that word has been abused. Right. Can I just take it back for a brief second to Trish Stratus and Lita? Um, we, would you describe, do you see a parallel, this is just something that floated in my head, and, and I would just love your cultural commentary on this. Would you see a parallel between what Trish and Lita were able to do to say uh, uh, black performers who had to perform in blackface, who were able to showcase art in terms of dance or singing in the context of being in this incredibly compromised cultural space? Were they basically like fighting for some semblance of art within a very oppressive structure, doing it in a way that was almost, say, transgressive and subterranean and something you were only really able to see if you were looking for it? Mm. Wow, wow. I've, n- I've never thought of it that way before. That's interesting. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I'd go that far. Um, I, I, I can definitely see some parallels. Uh, I think the difference is that... The, every time Trish and Lita uh, went out there, the space that they were given was, it was all their space. So mm. they didn't have to sneak in a double wrist lock in a three-minute match. They were given the space, and people left them alone and allowed them to do what they, want, do what they were able to do. We know that. That's been documented. That it wasn't well, the case of them making the matches better than maybe Vince wanted them to be. I feel like after a while... If you do that uh, enough, then uh, he'll notice and he'll talk to you about it. But they didn't. This went on for years. So how did the Divas become what we have today? How how did that bridge take place? Who was responsible for it? And who are the people who elevated the art of women's wrestling over the last even five years? I'd like to go back a little further than five years. Um, Sometimes I forget what year it is in my defense. Yeah, it's right. It's like five years ago. That was 2008, right? Right. right. No, no, brother, no. That was almost a decade ago. But I believe it started outside the WWE. It started with companies like Shimmer, Shimmer Women Athletes, which was an an all-female promotion. Uh, Women like uh, one of the head trainers at the WWE Performance Center, Sarah Amato, at the time Sarah Del Rey. Uh, The things that she was able to do all over the world, elevating the art and bringing that, bringing what she learned in Japan back to North America, um, that had a lot to do with it. In the WWE, there was a class of young ladies who came in uh, in a, uh, into Florida, in the Florida Championship Wrestling, which was the precursor to what's now NXT. You know, you had uh, who's currently there now is Naomi, uh, there uh, AJ Lee. Uh, and uh, there was a young woman who went by the name of Caitlin. And these three, when they, when they find, well, particularly AJ and Caitlin, when they finally hit the main roster, the, uh, they didn't act like divas. Right. You know, like, like Caitlin was kind of muscular. She wore 
you know, like, you know long cargo shorts. Uh, AJ was little and manipulative and was able to move chess pieces around really well. And there was and was a, probably kind of geeky, like was very in the geek probably kind of geeky. And and one of the and, and one of the key moments I would argue is when AJ was the women's champion. She walked out on the stage during one of those match, types of matches I was talking about, one of those you know titillation matches, and she stood on the stage and looked in the ring, and she was like, "I am not." the champion because of what I look like. I'm not the champion because I wear bras and panties in the ring. I am where I am because I'm good and I'm challenging every one of you in that ring to get on my level, pretty mm. much. And it's one of those things, nobody remembers that. Wow. Nobody remembers that, but you know, for a lot of us, it, 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 we call it AJ's pipe bomb. Pipe bomb is a reference to CM Punk and he used to talk about the microphone being a pipe bomb in his hand. Mm. That was AJ's pipe bomb. Ironically, she's his wife. <laughs> yes, got to mention that. <laughs> the irony. I mean, yes, <laughs> the irony. It it sounds like a match made in, in heaven. Um, somewhere, somewhere, maybe not heaven. So th- this is so interesting the, the gender discussion because we've now gone from there to wrestlers like Charlotte Flair and Sasha Banks. My favorite wrestler. Yes. Um, some, some, I mean, people who, I mean, I just think they do, they've done over the last four or five years, some of the best matches oh that we've seen goodness. on television. Now, I, I guess I want to ask you the from above or from below question, because is this just because these talented people came up in wrestling and their talent could not be denied? Or is this because Vince McMahon's daughter, Stephanie McMahon and her husband, uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, they basically said, to Vince, like, hey, old man, take a step back here because we have something special and we want to operate it. I think it's a little from column A, a little from column B. Um, a few years ago, after one of those three-minute matches, uh, a hashtag started called Give Divas a Chance, and it trended. It significantly trended. And and, and basically uh, what they were saying was, you got, you got talent, like... At the time, Paige had come up from NXT. Now, I, I should explain this, too. We can go back a little bit. Uh, on the main roster in the WWE, on, on, your, on Raw and SmackDown, women were still doing the three-minute you know, popcorn matches. But in their developmental promotion, NXT, they had, a, they had a women's tournament that set off an incredible string of some of the best matches on the show. They were consistently part of... To the point where I would argue that the NXT Women's Championship is the most protected, respected title in the company. Mm. Like it's the one that's been passed around the, 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 uh, to the fewest people. It's been held the longest. There, there haven't. There's no blips in the NXT Women. There's no Blake and Murphy uh, in the NXT Women's Championship history. You know, there's no Bo Dallas, even though I think he's the greatest NXT champion of all time. <laughs> he didn't his he didn't do stuff afterwards. Mm. You know, so they, they they don't have that. They have a consistent history of we're going to treat this title like the, the the respectful championship it is and that eventually as these women started to move up like once Paige showed up people were like oh wow Paige is here after you know she just had one of the best matches on television WWE's ever put together with Emma we know it's going to be and they just kept putting her in the same type of nonsense and so finally the hashtag started trending give divas a chance we just let these women work let them do what they are trained to do we know, we know they're capable of more than that and then uh, what caused the actual trigger? Like that, To me, this is almost like the, the end of the story where it goes from de- being the Divas Championship to the Women's Championship. Well, I think a lot of what caused it, again, was uh, some, 
was seeing what uh, the matches that women were having in NXT. I think uh, Sasha Banks versus Bayley at NXT TakeOver Brooklyn might be the match that really, really tipped the scales. And so so after that, the WWE as an organization, I do think some of it does have to do with uh, Triple H and Stephanie McMahon's uh, having some growing influence, particularly over uh, the developmental pro- project and some over the main roster project. Uh, I think that it was partly a, a, an experiment by the two of them, and partly it was just something that was necessary. And also you had, again, you've got the great Sarah Amato, uh, who's, one, who's one of the head trainers at the Performance Center, and when she was told that they were, that, that, that women were instructed to wrestle like divas, she was like, well, I don't know what that means, so you just go out mm. there and have a damn wrestling match, and mm. I'll take the hit, <laughs> you know? Wow. No, this is a fascinating. Um... So it's kind of top and bottom, you know. Like it was definitely a groundswell, but also you found yourself in a position where you had women at the top who were able, who um, had people at the top who were able to recognize that this is something that was was necessary. And 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 in this changing world, frankly, going back to capitalism, you know, uh, women have money too, and mm. people's daughters don't necessarily want to be divas, right? <laughs> And that's really what I'm getting out of this discussion. That's a great uh, bow you just put on this conversation, that wrestling as a cultural product is as contradictory as any cultural product we have up there involving all kinds of pushes and pulls and the, the ability for people to support and fight for the parts of it that they like, maybe in wrestling more than even in other cultural mediums, has a real effect on altering the medium because there is such sensitivity to what the fans are saying, both online and in arenas. Would you agree with that? To some extent, absolutely. I say to some extent just because I've also watched, particularly the WWE, willfully ignore the the, the, the needs of the fans up until right after the fans. They'll give the fans what they want right after they wanted it. It's, it, 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 it's, it's strange. It, it, it's it's kind of... It, it, when you're the only game, when you don't really have much competition, I guess it's easy to to, to do that. But historically, the, uh, and uh, historically, and to a lot of extents, even, even the way they operate, yes, because th- when you when your product is based on getting butts and seats and eyeballs on screens, you don't want to alienate the butts and the seats and the eyeballs on the screens. Eventually, you've got to feed the beast. You've got mm. to give them what they want. To tell the story correctly, you can't always give them what they want, but you also can't keep. T- uh, but they have this company also has a tendency to try to tell people what they want, and then when they say no, we don't want that, they'll just keep insisting until they've damaged some poor person's ability to uh, apply their craft. Mm. But enough about Roman Reigns. Ah, <laughs> zing, Damian Smith, man, thank you so much for this week's segment of State of the Art. Appreciate you. We'll be back with a quick word from the second best podcast produced by The Nation magazine, Start Making Sense. And now a quick word from the other podcast that The Nation sponsors. It's one of my favorite pods, Start Making Sense, hosted by John Wieners. This is Start Making Sense. It's politics without the boring parts. New episodes every Thursday at thenation.com. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. 
This week, the Just Stand Up Award goes to Seattle Seahawk Michael Bennett. If people haven't heard, and I'm sure you have, Michael Bennett made the decision to sit down before the national anthem in last Sunday's game, and then he took to the interview circuit, CNN, ESPN, to speak about why. He's been brave, he's been fearless, and I want to play an audio clip of why he explains, in his own words, why he is taking this extraordinary step. Um, I think last week I was just, with everything that's been going on the last couple of months, and especially after the last couple of days, seeing everything in Virginia, seeing what's going on out there, earlier today in Seattle, um, I just wanted to be able to use my platform to be able to continue to speak on injustice. First of all, I want to make sure people understand, I love the military, I love, my father was in the military, I love, I love hot dogs like any other American. I love football like any other American, but I don't love segregation. I don't love riots. I don't love um, oppression. I don't love, love, I love gender slander. And I just, I just want to see people have the equality that, that, they, that they deserve. And um, I want to be able to use this platform to continuously push the, the message of that. You know, that was Michael Bennett standing strong. And you know what? I know this because I'm working with Michael Bennett on a book. I know that his biggest fear is not that somebody will try to hurt him for saying this. His biggest fear is not losing his job or losing sponsors. His biggest fear is that he will be misunderstood. Let me tell you something, though. As long as he keeps speaking like this, that will not happen. Now let's go to the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. To me, this one was stone cold obvious and just sit your ass down award sit your ass down i mean it has to go to espn for doing that fantasy sports slave auction thing which they did right after charlottesville i mean it, it was the most bizarre tone deaf decision i, I don't even want to go into it too much just to say my god what are you doing Whose decision was this? And to me, what it speaks to as well is something that's rarely discussed, but I think one of the allures of fantasy sports is this idea of treating players like meat, like pieces of equipment, like things that are, frankly, things instead of people. And it played itself out almost like, it was almost like uh, the scene from the movie Get Out, where they're doing the auction on who gets to actually take control Um, of different black people. I mean, I I had so many get-out flashbacks when seeing footage of that ESPN fantasy auction. It was just a a horrific idea. I'm not sure why they did it. I'm not sure why someone didn't pull the plug on it. And I am sure that they'll almost certainly never do it again. Well, that's all for this week's Edge of Sports podcast. I want to thank, first and foremost, the co-producers of this podcast, Daniel Baker and David Tigabu. Thank you, fellas, so much. Thank you, Howard Bryant, for making the time. Thank you, Damian Smith, for making the time. Thank you to everybody out there listening. If you like the podcast, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, give it a rating, tell a friend. We operate on a grassroots model here, and the show will only expand if you help us expand it. I also want to dedicate this week's show, of course, to the memory of Heather Heyer, and I want to end the show, I mean, how can we not, with the words from Heather Heyer's mother, 
at her funeral service will go out with these words. Stay frosty, everybody. We are out of here. Peace. If you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And I want you to pay attention. Find what's wrong. Don't ignore it. Don't look the other way. You make a point to look at it and say to yourself, what can I do to make a difference? And that's how you're going to make my child's death worthwhile. I'd rather have my child, but by golly, if I got to give her up, we're going to make it count. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.